my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your magical friend and host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode will cover witch tricks, trippy death, and flesh eaters. Follow me to the dance floor where I will interpretive dance my thoughts about some films. Don't touch the sangria unless you want things to get extra weird. Number one, Don't Knock Twice, 2016, directed by Caradog W. James. Chloe's been in foster care because her mom, Jess, used to be a drug addict. Jess is now clean and asks Chloe if she would like to live with her and her new husband. Chloe declines the offer and goes to a house where a witch is supposed to live. Chloe's friend Danny knocks on the door twice, and Chloe does also. Danny is captured by the witch. Chloe is now being followed by the witch. She moves back in with Jess. Jess is a sculptor and is working with a model named Tira. Tira is freaked out about the whole witch thing and leaves. Tira tells Jess the only way the witch can be defeated is to find out who stole children back in the day. A woman who the kids called a witch, named Mary, was blamed for the missing children. She killed herself after being interrogated by Detective Boardman. Jess thinks Boardman kidnapped the kids. She goes to Mary's house, knocks twice before being arrested, goes through a portal, and finds Chloe. Jess leaves Boardman for dead after he comes through the portal to help them. Chloe confirms Mary was indeed the kidnapper since she saw Mary feed a kid to the Baba Yaga. Tira then kills the stepdad and it's revealed that she has the witch's slave mark. Since Jess was tricked into sacrificing Boardman by Tira, the demon was passed to Jess. A necklace Tira gave Jess burns the witch's mark onto Jess's chest. Mary, Tira, and the Baba Yaga are the killers. Jess leaves Boardman for dead, but she doesn't kill him herself. I don't even think she could have saved him. That summary was incredibly long and confusing, wasn't it? There was a witch and or a demon and a living witch slave. I think the easiest explanation is there is a demon witch thing that has a human slave. The human slave helps feed the witch and what have you. The first slave was Mary, then it was Tira who passed the job on to Jess. The demon witch thing lives in another dimension or something which you can gain access to by knocking on a door twice. Something like that. I'm getting a little long-winded with summaries again, which I'll try to tone down. 
Some of these movies have so many random plot points thrown in. Getting the plot straight in regards to Don't Knock Twice doesn't really matter since I don't recommend watching this anyways. Which is disappointing because there are some genuinely creepy moments. The design of the demon witch thing is great. It's brought to life with what appear to be mostly practical effects. The demon witch makes me want to tell you to check this out, but the rest of the movie isn't good. Oh, and there are multiple awful jump scares. How bad are they? The jump scares in this are random shots of the witch demon or the ghost of the human slave popping up on screen out of nowhere. They reminded me of those old screamer videos. Remember the one where you watch a car drive down a hill? Those were innocent times. I don't know if there was studio interference or something because Don't Knock Twice has legit creepy stuff in it. There is no need for these lazy, poorly implemented jump scares. The biggest downfalls of the movie are the terrible jump scares and Jess's delivery. For some reason, Jess is American while everyone else is British. Katie Sackhoff plays Jess and practically every line she delivers is off. There's a part in the movie where Jess watches Chloe start floating in the air before being thrown into a cabinet. Sackhoff has no reaction to this. It's a truly hilarious scene thanks to Sackhoff's acting or lack thereof. The creators of Don't Knock Twice don't seem to realize how blood works. What I mean is they don't understand how blood comes out of wounds. There's a scene where Jess sees a woman slit her throat. The woman then slides down a wall with her back against it, which leaves a blood smear. What? Was the back of her head bashed in? No, she slit her throat. Another example, Jess steps on a board with two protruding nails. As soon as she steps on the nails, there is a blood explosion. There wouldn't even be that much blood after the nails are pulled out. While I'm complaining about blood, after the nail step happens, Jess, who's in an interrogation room, digs into her foot wound to write a message in blood on the wall. The blood is bright red and looks more like red paint than anything else. Another funny part is when the stepdad comes home, he finds a random creepy naked lady in his bedroom and the way he reacts to it is great. He nonchalantly says, who are you? Where's Jess? I'm calling the police before he's murdered. Lucy Boynton plays Chloe in Don't Knock Twice. She was also in The Black Coat's Daughter, which is a much better movie. I liked her in Don't Knock Twice. I really want to recommend this movie solely due to the few well-done creepy elements, but Katie Sackhoff's piss-poor performance, all-over-the-place plot, and inclusion of the most groan-inducing jump scares I've ever seen greatly outweigh the tasty creepy bits. Skip Don't Knock Twice and check out The Black Coat's Daughter instead. For the record, if the true Baba Yaga John Wick showed up in Don't Knock Twice, I definitely would have recommended it. Number 2, Serial Mom, 1994, directed by John Waters. A mother with the perfect nuclear family starts murdering people she deems bad. The police finally catch up to her and she's arrested. At the trial, she represents herself and is found not guilty. 
While leaving the courtroom, she murders a juror for wearing white shoes after Labor Day, and the movie ends right before Serial Mom attacks Suzanne Summers. Serial Mom is the killer. I've been wanting to watch a John Waters movie for some time, so maybe I was a little loose when considering whether or not this is a horror movie. Technically speaking, it's not, but the mom is a killer. Horror movies are brought up in Serial Mom. The son played by Matthew Lillard is obsessed with them, and Blood Feast makes an appearance in the film. I have yet to see Blood Feast or any other John Waters film besides Crybaby, which is blasphemous, I know. When you have to watch a ton of horror movies, it can be hard to find time for other movies you should have already seen by now. Serial Mom is a delight. It's incredibly campy in the best way. Serial Mom's family all acts like you'd expect a perfect family to act, which comes off as cartoonish in a good way. The best way to explain the family's delivery is the phrase, gee golly. I think that about sums it up. Everyone is great in Serial Mom. Kathleen Turner is the perfect balance of happy-go-lucky and insane. I'll like Matthew Lillard in anything he does. He's not especially amazing in this, but it was one of his first big movies. The premise of the movie is so simple and absurd. A suburban mom starts killing people who upset her. It's fantastic. She hounds a woman with prank phone calls just because she stole her parking spot. Mom kills a boy because he doesn't like her daughter, another because he finds out about her killings, but mostly because the young man doesn't wear a seatbelt when driving. There are hilarious little bits spread throughout Serial Mom. She killed the guy who didn't like her daughter back in a bathroom. She stabs him with a fire poker and pulls out what appears to be one of his kidneys. She awkwardly tries to shake it off the poker, which is such a small thing, but perfectly comedic. The cherry on top of this kill is when a muscular man holding a kebab enters the bathroom, sees the body, and screams. A stock scream, the Howie scream in particular, is played which I'd normally hate, but the stock scream mixed with the decision to have this man bring a kebab into the bathroom made me laugh out loud. Serial Mom is filled with these types of comedic moments, like when she sneezes on a baby, beats a woman to death with a leg of lamb instead of stabbing her, and when Mom's followed to church by a full squad of cop cars. There's also a part where an older woman has her feet licked by a dog, which I can only assume is very John Waters, based on what I know about him. If you are looking for a straight-up mom-goes-crazy slasher, Serial Mom is not the movie you're looking for. That movie would be Friday the 13th. Serial Mom is more of an absurd comedy that anyone can enjoy, horror fans included. From the hammy delivery to the ridiculous kills, the movie is an incredibly fun time. If you're a huge John Waters fan and know of any other movies he's done that can loosely be considered horror, definitely let me know. Fun fact, remember that band L7? They play the fake band Camel Lips in Serial Mom. Number 3, Climax, 2018, directed by Gaspar Noé. Alright, this one's going to be a little weird. You're going to hear my initial thoughts about the movie, like you normally would for any section, but after the initial first go-over, I've added an addendum at the end. I did more research on LSD after writing the initial review, 
it looks like LSD can make people a little more violent and irrational than I originally thought. Why didn't I just rewrite the section? Good question. I thought about it, then decided that there are probably a lot of people that aren't aware how harmful LSD can be, like past me, so I think my old view is interesting. Now that I've primed this section a bit, here it is. Climax 2018, directed by Gaspar Noé. Dancers are finishing up after three days of rehearsals in an abandoned school. Their manager, Emmanuel, provides sangria for them to celebrate the end of rehearsals. Someone spiked the sangria with LSD. People die. It's heavily implied that one of the dancers, Psyche, spiked the sangria. LSD is the killer. Wait, humans are the killer? Stupidity is the killer? Psyche is the killer? Emmanuel is the killer? Mob mentality is the killer? Electrical currents and the cold are the killers? Yeah. I guess we'll just go with LSD is the killer because the shallow message of the film is drugs are bad. It's either that or humanity is stupid. Let me talk through the reasons for the killer rambling. All the deaths are a result of the spike sangria. Psych probably spiked the sangria, so she's a killer. If we aren't blaming her, we shouldn't really blame the LSD because LSD doesn't make you throw someone out in the cold lock your kid in an electrical room, kill yourself, or become randomly violent. If the LSD was changed to PCP, maybe I would be able to suspend my disbelief. The problem with Climax is, I'm supposed to believe all of these people are acting insane because of LSD spike sangria. First of all, you would need like a quart of LSD to spike all the sangria to make the huge amount of dancers this high. I'm no expert, but I doubt a few drops would be enough to make the large number of people in this movie all feel the effects. There are multiple instances of why is this happening in Climax. There's a character named Lou who's pregnant. She doesn't drink the sangria because pregnant. She gets assaulted by another girl who knees Lou in the stomach, then kicks her there again after she goes down. The other girl does this because she thinks Lou is lying and because LSD. Obviously, this is just in the movie for shock value. Noe loves him some shock value. Speaking of shock value, Emmanuel locks her son Tito in an electrical room for no reason, which leads to him being shocked to death. Stupid. Why wouldn't she take him back to his room and stay with him there? LSD doesn't make people this irrational, does it? Back to Lou. Lou is sober but wants revenge against the kicker, so she decides to go confront her. No one who's sober and able to think clearly would try to confront someone in a room where they and everyone else there is all crazy high on LSD. I can look past this poor decision due to Lou wanting revenge, Lou confronts the girl, then everyone turns on Lou. All the high people are yelling at Lou, who has a knife, so Lou starts punching herself in the stomach and cutting herself. Um, what? Why? She's sober. Why, why would... Never mind. The gore for her cuts looks good. A guy named Omar, who the mob threw out into the snow since they believe he spiked the sangria, since like Lou, he also didn't drink, is shown to have frozen to death at the end. It's like he didn't even try to get back into the building. 
If you are out in the cold, freezing to death, you'd be willing to break a window or something. I guess Climax needed a higher body count, so that's why he dies. The police show up the morning after the LSD night. Wait, if Omar is dead, who contacted the police? This is set in 1996. The school appears to be isolated. No one has cell phones. No one is shown calling the police on a landline. Why do they show up? Why was there a random burner on next to a girl who was snorting coke? Just so she could get pushed back into it to light her hair on fire? I've been complaining a lot so far. Climax is a beautiful movie. The camera movement is amazing. There are multiple long shots that include numerous actors doing incredible choreography. The dancing in this is amazing. The soundtrack is fantastic. House and other dance music is played throughout the entire film. It includes Window Liquor by Aphex Twin. I love that song. Fun fact, that song is also used in Grandma's Boy, which is probably Happy Madison's only good movie. Well, I guess I also have a soft spot for Little Nicky and Mr. Deeds. Wait a minute. Window Liquor came out in 1999. Climax is set in 1996. They were so high on LSD, they heard songs from the future. Even though some of the songs on the soundtrack came out after 1996, the soundtrack perfectly fits the film. It is truly one of the greatest soundtracks I can think of. The big problem with Climax is its focus on style over substance. If the plot had been stronger, I'd highly recommend checking this out. But a bunch of things happen for the sole purpose of being shocking. Why include incest in your movie when you could have had a jealous guy who thinks a girl is into him instead of a brother lusting after his sister? Shock value. Oh, and even though I think most of the movie is incredibly stunning, at one point towards the end, there's a long shot of all the debauchery and chaos on the dance floor. This shot is bathed in red, and everything is blurry and dark, which makes what's going on hard to see. I could see this being a stylistic choice to capture the chaos, but I'm not a fan. A lot of the dialogue seemed off in climax, but most of the movie is in French, it's possible that the conversations the dancers have wouldn't seem so irregular if I was fluent in French. Climax is a beautifully shot movie that has people make absurd decisions because LSD. It's shallow, I'd even be fine with the film being this shallow if the shock value was ramped up. Add more insanity. I only recommend checking out Climax if you're a fan of Gaspar Noé or are looking to watch something that has an amazing aesthetic and soundtrack but lacks any real substance. The only other Noe movie I attempted to watch was Enter the Void, and I didn't make it all the way through due to boredom. I don't feel like I wasted my time watching Climax, and I'm happy I saw it. I just can't give it a shining recommendation. Addendum. Oh boy, I haven't done one of these since Martyrs was on the podcast. So I did a little more research on LSD. It appears that LSD has the potential to make people violent and prone to self-harm. So some of the things that happen in Climax could actually be blamed on LSD. That being said, Lou, the girl who harms herself, didn't take any. Lou's actions don't make a lot of sense. Maybe she wanted to keep the baby and was destroyed after the other girl caused her to probably miscarry. Even with that explanation, her actions are still unbelievable. 
I realized after writing the climax section that I don't really know that much about LSD. Maybe all Psych had to put in the punch bowls was a few small vials. Doses appear to be pretty small, so if someone drank two cups of sangria from a punch bowl that had a small vial of LSD poured into it, they'd probably end up tripping. I still think Climax has a bunch of pointless shock value that isn't all that shocking. Tito's death was shocking, literally, not figuratively. I had to bring up that terrible joke again. As soon as that kid came on screen, I knew he'd die. I wanted to reiterate that I don't believe Climax went far enough into shocking territory. Noe's films have a reputation of being horrifying, and I don't think Climax pushed things enough. I now recommend checking out Climax if you can make it to a theater. The opening dance sequence is worth the price of admission alone. Being somewhat removed from my viewing has made me appreciate the film more as an experience. Also, knowing that LSD could actually lead to some of the events, barring Luz and Omar's strange decisions, changed my opinion about a lot of the events in the film. My lack of knowledge on what LSD is capable of definitely ended up negatively impacting my viewing. Number 4, Treehouse, 2019, directed by James Rade. One of the McPoyles, called Peter Rake in this, is a celebrity chef. He heads home to his childhood home to lay low after doing something. There, he meets a group of women having a bachelorette party. He invites them over for dinner. They drug him. When he comes to, he finds out the women are witches. One of the witches says Peter caused her sister to commit suicide. It's revealed that Peter has sexually assaulted women, treated them poorly, and later his sister reveals that Peter raped her childhood friend. The witches scare him and tell him if he's ever bad again, they'll kill him. It's then revealed that they aren't really witches. Peter doesn't know this though, and a woman who he's never met shows him she is also one of the witches to scare him. The horrible memory of what Peter did is the killer. I guess I'm reaching for something here. You never cease to amaze me, Hulu Into the Dark. Whenever I think your movies can't get any more terrible, you find a way. Treehouse is painfully awful. Stephanie Beatrice is in this. You might not know that name, but you've probably seen her before. She plays Rosa in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You know that show that has two prominent, awesome representations of Latina women. Stephanie plays Elena in this movie, and Elena encapsulates the stereotypical Latina woman. Her character has absolutely no depth or personality. She's just the stereotypical Latina witch. You're too good for this, Stephanie. I'm assuming she signed on to this before it was set in stone that NBC would save Brooklyn Nine-Nine from cancellation. This was written and directed by a dude that grew up in San Antonio. His real last name is Rodriguez. How are you going to write such a terrible character? Here is something Elena actually says in a heavy fake accent. Are you going to feed us or not, Poppy? Ugh. After it's revealed that the women are witches, I thought that Elena would drop the act, but nope. Elena is not the only stereotypical character. There is also a British witch who says the most stereotypical British things like shite and wanker, the witch that's black? 
Of course she does voodoo. I don't want to get all preachy here, but Hachimachi are these stereotypes so over the top they come off as comical. They're so bad they encroach on caricature territory. Too bad this movie isn't self-aware in the slightest. How could anyone read the script for Treehouse and think to themselves, gee, this is something I want to be in. Treehouse must be horrible even on paper. Uh-oh. I feel it coming on. Full rant mode. It's been a while, old friend. I can't control it. Why are the witches revealed to be fake witches? Why can't they be real? They explain how they do some obvious things, but they don't explain how they turn a snake bracelet into a real snake, then back into a bracelet. Why did they turn the bracelet into a coral snake? Everyone knows red to black, good friend to Jack. Anyone would be able to spot a coral snake even under pressure. All of us had the red to yellow killer fellow drilled into our heads as kids. Also, if they are fake witches, how did they make awful looking CGI fire appear on their hands? Did you know you can easily do a fire palm effect practically? Look up fireball you can hold on YouTube. It's simple and would have looked so much better. The dialogue in Treehouse might be a candidate for the worst dialogue ever spoken out loud in a film. Here are some examples of what's said in the movie word for word. We're not angry bitches. We're angry witches. To draining the swamp one bad ombre at a time. You also get sayings like mess with the bull get the horns and a kid who's supposed to be 14 says let me just spitball here. No kid has ever said that unless they were literally going to shoot a spitball at something. Almost everyone's delivery is abysmal but given the god awful script how would anyone deliver these lines sincerely? McPoyle and his sister Gwen are the only believable characters in this. There's a housekeeper named Agnes and every line she delivers is so terribly off it's hilarious. For part of the movie she's wearing some absurdly large sunglasses which just heightens her accidentally comedic presence. She ends up being Lonnie's mother. Who's Lonnie? An unnecessary character that almost saves the movie single-handedly. How does Lonnie almost save Treehouse? He grew up with Peter and Peter's sister Gwen. Lonnie was kind of friends with Gwen. Peter ends up talking to Lonnie who asks Peter to tell Gwen the following the next time he sees her. <clears throat> hey, Gwenny. He says it just as creepy as that. It's the best part of the film. Kat and I have been randomly saying it to each other since our viewing. It's almost on the same level of Puka's, That's me! If you don't remember that part in the other Into the Dark film Puka, it's when the main character goes full Nick Cage, is wearing the Puka suit, two kids steal the head, and he yells after them, That's me! Which is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen in any movie. I can't quite put how terrible Treehouse is into words. There are tacky transitions like when we get a fade to red after Agnes practices her Gene Simmons impersonation in the mirror and the tone shifts from creepy to happy-go-lucky to lifetime movie kids or angels type stuff at the drop of a hat. The movie is all over the place. I had a bad case of tonal whiplash after watching it. Even though I think Treehouse is awful garbage, there are a few good things sprinkled throughout. Somehow Treehouse has one of the creepiest mask designs I've ever seen. A random person just shows up at McPoyle's house wearing this terrifying mask, lets themselves into the house, and starts making their way towards McPoyle, who is rightfully freaking out. This is the best part in Treehouse, but it's quickly ruined 
when other figures wearing awfully designed masks pop up seconds after the amazing first mask reveal. Why didn't they just have all the witches wear the same horrifying mask? Besides the legitimately creepy mask, I also liked when the witches sing McPoyle a song about shutting up. That was fun. What else can I say about Treehouse? Oh yeah, at one point during the movie, McPoyle sees a CGI cockroach climbing on the wall. He tries to kill it, but is unable to because it's CGI. I found that hilarious. There are a couple paintings that look similar to the Deese paintings in Velvet Buzzsaw. One of the paintings even moves. Do not bother with Hulu's March installment of Into the Dark Treehouse. Who would have thought that two dudes with nothing impressive on their resumes besides working on that psych show would fail so miserably at writing women characters with any depth? Number 5. C.H.U.D., a.k.a. Chud, 1984, directed by Douglas Cheek. People are being eaten by strange creatures that live underground. Bosch, a police captain's wife, was one of the victims. Bosch teams up with a guy who feeds the homeless named A.J. Shepard to figure out what's going on. A photographer named Cooper, who did a piece on the people living underground, eventually ends up underground with AJ while the government is trying to kill all the chud, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. It's revealed that the homeless people are turning into chud because of a plan by the government called CHUD, which actually stands for Contamination Hazard Urban Disposal, where nuclear waste was being dumped in the city's underground. This was being carried out under the command of a guy named Wilson. Wilson tries to cover this up, attempts to kill Bosch, and is taken out by AJ. The NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, led by Wilson, the cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers they created, and Wilson's Lacoste-wearing goon are the killers. Not surprisingly, Lacoste, I think that's how you pronounce it, shirts have been worn by douchebags since the 80s. The goon slams close the hatch on a homeless dude that's trying to climb up a ladder, which insta-kills the dude. I told y'all I was going to watch Chud last episode, so here we are. Who knew that Mr. McAllister and Marv met before the events of Home Alone? John Hurd plays Cooper, and the always fun-to-watch Daniel Stern plays AJ, the Reverend Shepherd. I think Daniel Stern thrives the most as a comedic actor. He's incredible in Home Alone, and I also love his performance in Rookie of the Year. He's okay in Chud. I couldn't really detach him from Marv due to him having the same big hair in this. John Hurt's character Cooper is a flawed jerk that shows he's also a decent guy. His character had more depth than you normally see in a horror movie, especially one about underground monsters. I liked Christopher Curry as Captain Bosch and Kim Greist as Lauren Daniels, Cooper's living together girlfriend who's the most badass character in the movie. Pet warning, she finds the body of Bosch's dog. It's not disturbing at all, she basically sees a stuffed animal with some blood on it that's hanging from a leash. When I saw it, I was like, huh, fake dog. Besides coming across the pooch corpse, Lauren unclogs a tub drain while taking a shower that causes an inexplicable blood eruption. She's not phased in the least by this. Lauren then hears something monstrous coming her way and barricades the door to the studio she lives in. 
The chud smashes its way into the studio, and after a quick game of cat and mouse, Lauren straight up slices the monster's head off with a sword. She's awesome. On the other hand, Cooper sees a couple torn apart men scattered about while trying to escape the underground and starts freaking out. All the gore, excluding the dead dog, looks nice and practical. You see a guy that has a big chunk of his leg torn off, Mrs. Bosch's decapitated head, another decapitated head, an undergrounder whose lower half has gone missing, and various other body parts strewn about. About that leg with the missing chunk, I'm pretty sure that wound would straight up kill you, but the guy who has it ends up turning into a chud. I can understand the chud infection, keeping him alive. I don't think a chud bite turns the bitee into a chud. If it's supposed to, Lauren does end up getting bitten. The creature designs are fun. Sometimes the chud look pretty good, but at other times they look crazy cheap. The first time AJ lays eyes on the creatures, they look especially awful for some reason. I'm pretty sure the same shot of a creature partially opening its mouth is used about six times. During one sequence, the shot is played practically back to back, which made it way more obvious. One chud, the one Lauren decapitates, extends its neck all giraffe-like. The effect was fun, and I like the green blood that spurts out of its neck. A random John Goodman appears. He's in the movie for about two minutes before he's eaten off screen. The score for the movie is cheesy and at times completely repetitive, but I didn't hate it. One thing I'm curious about is why the police department had access to flamethrowers. I have a hard time believing there is a flamethrower unit at the police department ready and waiting for a call to scorch random creatures in the city's underground. Captain Bosch seems to get a ragtag group of fire wielders together in no time. They all die, so maybe they weren't all that familiar with using the flamethrowers. Chud is a cheesy 80s horror movie in a good way. I don't consider it to be a top-tier cheesy 80s horror movie, though. It's solid B-tier. Chud should be watched with friends and drinks. Number 6, Feeding Frenzy, 2010, directed by Jay Bauman and Mike Stoklasa. A guy named Jesse works at a hardware store owned by Mr. Plinkett. Jesse, a girl he likes named Christine, and her boyfriend break their way into a locked room in the hardware store basement and find out that Mr. Plinkett has been keeping flesh-eating monsters alive in there. The boyfriend ends up eaten, Mr. Plinkett shows up, the monsters escape, the monsters kill people that had been at the hardware store, and Jesse, Christine, and Jesse's coworker Carl work to capture the creatures. After the trio captures the monsters, Mr. Plinkett shows up with one of his sons that Plinkett kept alive, they kidnap Jesse and Christine, take the monsters which then fuse together to become Mrs. Plinkett's dead wife, dead wife monster tears off Plinkett's head, chases Jesse and Christine, Jesse eventually kills the monster with a defibrillator, and Jesse and Christine bang on top of the monster's corpse. Mr. Plinkett and the flesh-eating monsters in their individual and combined forms are the killers. Feeding Frenzy starts off by showing Mr. Plinkett murder a prostitute for meat to feed to the monsters. That's mainly why he's on the killer list. Before the murdering for meat, he used to just order gross animal meat to feed the little buggers. I'm a big fan of Red Letter Media. I have consumed a lot of their content and find them to be a funny group. Due to this, I am biased going into Feeding Frenzy. Even with my bias, I don't think it's the best thing ever. 
Rich Evans plays Mr. Plinkett, which he's been doing for quite some time. It's interesting that Mike Stoklasa does the voice for Mr. Plinkett in reviews, but Rich Evans plays him in their videos. I don't think any of the Red Letter Media gang are amazing actors, but I especially enjoy watching Rich and Mike. They're hilarious. Mike plays Carl, who's probably the best character. Jay Bauman is also in Feeding Frenzy. He's Jesse's roommate, Martin, who is prone to heart attacks when startled. That's why Jesse has access to a defibrillator at the end of the movie. This movie is an homage to all the cheesy killer puppet movies from the 1980s like Critters and Ghoulies. Movies that I still need to get around to eventually. I'll probably check out Critters for the next episode since Shudder is about to release a Critters series. I purchased Feeding Frenzy through the Red Letter Media website. Throughout the movie, there were random frame rate drops. I'm not sure if this was due to the site's player or camera issues. I think it might be due to the latter, since the weird drops in frame rate would last for entire shots, then disappear. Besides the strange low frame rate shots, the movie looks pretty good. I would have liked some color correction here and there, which would have made some of the shots look more cinematic, but that's a nitpick. I don't think anyone who isn't a fan of Red Letter Media is going to accidentally stumble upon Feeding Frenzy. As a fan, a lot of the humor landed for me. There's an awkwardly long scene where girls are having a pillow fight in their underwear. Feathers start flying everywhere. During this, I started thinking about how annoying the cleanup would be. Boom! We cut to a shot of the girls trying to vacuum up the feathers. That got me good. A lot of the humor revolves around Mike's character Carl. His delivery makes things that normally wouldn't be that funny hilarious. He is supposed to go warn someone that the monsters are probably hunting them. He shows up at the person's house to find out they've already been killed and says he shouldn't have stopped at Taco Bell. It's stupid in the best way. You may have noticed that I said only Jesse and Christine end up being kidnapped by Plinkett at the end. That's because he let Carl go. Plinkett tells the chained up Jesse and Christine this information, which is followed by a shot of Carl dancing at a club. The humor really worked for me. I really enjoyed the scenes where a girl's flesh is eaten by the creatures, leaving only her skeleton behind, and when a glasses-wearing gentleman loses his glasses and picks up two monsters, which he thinks are his glasses. Yeah, he puts them on his eyes, and it's dumb and great. The gore is... Fine. It ranges from well done, like when Plinkett kills a prostitute with a cane that erects a blade out of the bottom while she has it in her mouth, to passable when the monsters bite Jesse's leg, which he instantly forgets about after the fact. I'm pretty sure Jesse not caring about his chewed up leg is meant to be a gag. The monsters look pretty great when they are in their separate ball forms. When they combine into monster Mrs. Plinkett, the design is laughably terrible, which I'm sure the Red Letter Media crew was going for. Monster Mrs. Plinkett basically looks like one of those sumo suits you'd see in an old 90s movie like Blank Check that's been vandalized with liquid rubber. Actually, Mrs. Monster looks more like a shaved gorilla costume. Towards the end of the movie, Christine says she isn't magically into Jesse just because of their trauma bonding, which I really enjoyed. Sure, they still end up banging at the end, but I still like the unlikely coupling due to trauma bonding trope being called out. If you are a fan of Red Letter Media, check out Feeding Frenzy. If you're not a fan, I don't think you'll appreciate it on its own merit as a horror comedy alone. 
Number seven, Conversations with a Killer. The Ted Bundy Tapes, 2019, created by Joe Berlinger. It's topic seven, so you know the deal. This section is going to be loosey-goosey and probably end up bordering on senseless ramblings. I knew a lot less about Ted Bundy than I thought. Well, I thought Ted Bundy was Ed Gein. I'm not sure how I got that twisted in my head. I assume I merged the two into one super serial killer who murdered random women, then turned their flesh into random household objects. Anyways, did you listeners know that Ted Bundy was a beautiful man and genius? I mean, you wouldn't know by looking at him or examining his actions that he is in fact incredibly sexy and smart. I thought he looked like a creepy old dude for his 30s that was kind of a complete moron, albeit a lucky one. This overly long documentary told me otherwise. Almost everyone that is interviewed lets us know how attractive they found Ted Bundy. Hell, they're getting Zac Efron to play Ted in a movie. I think a closer pick would be Michael Sarah. It's the nose, you know. It's really pointy. Almost in a cartoonish way. Why do I say that? Probably due to the part in the videotape trial where we are shown a sketch of a guy with a really pointy nose that looks way more like Ted Bundy than you'd expect. Did I mention how handsome and intelligent Ted Bundy is already? Did you know that Ted Bundy escaped custody twice? Yep. For one escape he just bailed out a window, and for another he made a hole in the ceiling of his prison cell and squeezed himself through like a kitten squishes its body under door gaps to get into a room it's not supposed to. You'd think that even if someone was able to escape their cell, the prison would have some way of making sure the prisoner was apprehended before escaping the entire compound, but nope. More women ended up murdered because some terrible prison couldn't do the one thing a prison is built for. Something I learned from the Ted Bundy tapes is that at one point, Bundy's mom looked exactly like Ted Bundy wearing a wig. You see a picture of her with young Ted in the opening credits of each of the four parts that will make you do a double take. I found the Ted Bundy tapes documentary to be kind of bad. It's way longer than it needs to be. Getting to hear the taped interviews and see the old news and court recordings was interesting, but I'd say most of the interviews that are shown are either a waste of time or just plain bad. 20% of the interviews are decent. I thought I'd have more to talk about since this documentary is over 4 hours, but 50% of the runtime was spent making sure I knew Ted Bundy was smart and attractive. He was so smart that he decided to defend himself in court and failed miserably, twice. I was surprised to see that the United States was still using an electric chair in 1986. I guess that was, three decades ago, a completely different time. I wonder why we used electrical chairs at all when a bullet to the head sounds more humane. I think the documentary would have been more interesting if the tapes of Bundy actually had him confessing to the crimes. At the very end, there is a call recording where he starts admitting stuff, but that's probably in the last 20 minutes. I don't recommend Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Episode 40 of Blank is the Killer is now over. The big 4-0. I never thought I'd make it this far. If you like this episode of Blank is the Killer, I'd heavily appreciate it if you went to iTunes and dropped a rating. I started listening to some new fighting game podcasts, 
No Frills with Yipes and Chris Matrix, and another one called Coffee and Combos. I went to iTunes and left them both ratings in under a minute. It's that easy. If you like fighting games, I recommend checking out those podcasts. Also check out other podcasts on the Sticker Fridge Network. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting Blank is the Killer on their awesome website. The next episode will be out on March 24th. Jordan Peele's new horror movie, Us, comes out on the 22nd, so I'll try to have that on the next episode. Labor Day is September 2nd this year. Make sure to wear your white shoes before that date and cease sliding them on your feet after or Serial Mom will find you guilty of bad fashion, a crime obviously punishable by death.